want to welcome everybody this morning. We've been going through Genesis, and I'm going to read from Genesis 32 in just a minute. Um, but let's just pray again. God, I I've just appreciated every song that we sang this morning, and we just, not just singing songs, but praying those words, God, that that you just continue to do this work in us. We are so, so grateful to you for your hand on us, for showing your steadfast love to us, for intervening in our lives when we were not even looking for you. Lord, saving us from the kingdom of darkness and bringing us into your kingdom of light and salvation and life. God, we are just overwhelmed with your goodness towards us that don't deserve it. And yet, not only do you do that, but you have been changing us and working in our lives. And Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, we thank you that we are your workmanship because we know we cannot change ourselves. We cannot, us at our very best, fail miserably. And so God, today we thank you for the work that you are doing in us. We thank you for causing us to grow in our love for you, that we would love you with our heart, soul, might, strength, everything in us. And Lord, that we would grow in our love for one another. Lord, caring for one another and loving as you love. God, as we hear your word this morning, we ask that you would give us understanding because we know that otherwise we'll just be hearing words, hearing a story. But God, we know that you've got so much more for us. And so, Lord, I ask that you would give us understanding. And Lord, I ask that you would touch each person you know each one of us and the things that we struggle with the things that we're facing lord the sin in our life the place that we're at and god we just give ourselves to you today and we thank you for um leading us showing us the way bringing us to repentance bringing us to faith doing this work in us we thank you, God, again, and give you all the glory. Amen. So, if you want to turn with me to chapter 32 of Genesis, we'll continue our story about Jacob. So Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of the place Mahanam. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. 
I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we, come to, we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you and there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two, two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have come, become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau my brother meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau, and moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you have asked my name? 
and there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Penel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Thank you, God, for your word. Is actively shepherding his people for every tribe of life. 
the, the, the narrator, the narrator, is refusing to let the two dimensions of this account, towards God and towards his brother, be separated from each other. They're both kind of interweaving with each other as we get into chapter 33. So we'll, we'll see more of that in the next chapter. Continuing on then, verse 3. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, the land of Seir, the country of Edom. You shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban this day until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, male servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. And the messenger returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are four hundred men with you. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him in the flocks and herds and camels into two camps. So Jacob and Esau had no contact with one another for over 20 years. And as you can imagine, Jacob's assumption is that Esau has not for one minute forgotten or forgiven Jacob. And so even the way that Esau is introduced here is designed to evoke memories of the hostilities between these brothers. Actually, all of the words are uh, echoing words from their conflict. I'm going to skip through that because we don't have time. But in the meantime, Esau has already conquered the Horites who formerly lived at Seir, Deuteronomy 2.12, and has gathered 400 men, which is in that day a nice round number for a standard militia. Remember, uh, Abraham goes out with 318 men to conquer four countries. I mean, this is an army in these days. And so Jacob's response as ours often do, shows both faith and lack of faith. With the distressed father of Mark 9.24, all of God's people must pray, I believe. Help my unbelief. So Jacob is shrewd and pragmatic, devising a strategy to respond to this perceived threat. And then in verse 9, he calls out to God for protection, after which, then his pragmatism kicks back in again, and he takes things into his own hands. And so the, the prayer is sandwiched between these two strategies that Jacob enacts in order to try to preserve his own life. The prayer is the longest in all of Genesis, and, and a model prayer for the psalmists. It, it shows Jacob's faith at its best. His strategies, however, show that his faith still falters. Jacob is stuck between a rock and a hard place, and I'm really getting good mileage out of cliche this morning. A, a retreat would violate his pact with Laban and bring him right back into conflict with the Aramean militia, and, but remaining in the land means an encounter with Esau and his army. And so at first all he can do to minimize his losses is to divide his immediate family into two groups hoping to save the most important part of his family, which uh, Genesis 33, too sadly makes clear. It's only his favorite wife, Rachel, and favorite son, Joseph, that he puts in the, the rear camp. Um, and he sends the rest of his family in the front camp. And so Jacob coldly calculates that Esau can only attack one camp at a time. And so he's going to try to preserve some. The human strategy then continues in verse 13 after the prayer. We're going to look at that first. 
in verse 13 to 21. And to save time, I'm not going to read it all to you again. This is where he sends the groups of animals, drove by drove, through to Esau. And what we don't understand immediately is this is actually quite a sound tactic. He's going to make it hard for Esau to ambush him by sending multiple groups, one after another, uh, so they won't be prepared anymore. And then how is he going to sneak up on him if he has all these animals with him? Uh, and now Jacob's men are in with his men. So there's a lot of military tactics that goes into this plan. But Jacob is essentially trying to use everything he has to his best uh, purpose to protect his own life. And he, he does quite well at it. But I instead of waiting confidently on the Lord, having seen his angelic protection with his own eyes, and having called on him for deliverance, Jacob tries to worm his way out of the situation. One of the things we see is that Jacob still carries a weight of guilt over the way he had received the blessing, as though he had somehow acquired it for himself. He still struggles with this attitude that the blessing he possesses is the result of his own efforts, deceitful and otherwise. In his best moments of clarity and faith, Jacob recognizes that God is the one who has blessed and protected him, but that faith falters. And so in sending a gift of 550 herd animals in waves to Esau, Jacob starts an attempt to return the blessing that he had received. This was supposed to be his brothers, after all, by all human reckoning, and so he begins to send the blessing to Esau. And in constantly referring to himself as Esau's servant, and to Esau as his lord, he was attempting to restore the precedence of the, the firstborn birthright that God had stripped from Esau and granted to Jacob. And so in this chapter, we essentially see Jacob is willing to relinquish his blessing to Esau in order to preserve his own life. These, these two aspects of the blessing, the, the blessed abundance that God had granted to him and the right of the firstborn that he had, God literally took from Esau and gave to Jacob. Now Jacob's just handing this all over. And in fact, he, he says this explicitly in Genesis 33, 11, regarding these gifts. He says, please accept my blessing that is brought to you. And so Jacob is handing over his blessing that God has given to him in attempt to save his life. And then for a second time at the end here uh, of verse 21 and 20, Jacob gives instructions to the messengers that include this improper use of servant and Lord. Jacob's the servant, Esau's the Lord. But God had declared, Genesis 25, 23, the older shall serve the younger. But now, filled with fear and guilt, Jacob is not only willing to re return the blessing, he is ready to give up his God-ordained place of leadership in the family. And so we could, we could see this as well. Jacob's just trying to make amends, just trying to work things out. But rea in reality, he is giving up on everything that God has blessed him with, even what God has charged him with, the responsibility of leadership that God has given him. Now, all of these devices and manipulations are quite characteristic for Jacob. He has always been this way. What is new in this chapter is that Jacob also now looks outside himself for well-being and praise. Genesis 32, 9 to 12. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good, 
I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sands of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. This is the only extended prayer in the book of Genesis. There are conversations with God and even vows, but this is the first lengthy expression formulated as a prayer. And so it's Jacob's only prayer. And it shares the structure of a group of psalms we refer to as the penitential psalms, uh, which has this formula, an invocation, verse 9, a confession, verse 10, a petition or a request from God, verse 11, and then finally it ends with an expression of confidence and motivation. And there's many psalms that have this exact formula, calling on God for help, a confession of, of failure to trust, a petition asking God for what they need, and then finally an expression of confidence. We know that God is going to do what he said. And so whether Jacob invents this or whether he, the author here is following the Psalms, this is along the same formula. In the invocation, Jacob addresses God, and this is so important, Jacob addresses God exactly as God had revealed himself in his self-disclosure in Genesis 28, 13, and 15. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. Behold, I am with you and will keep you and will bring you back to this land. Now, this, this is such a key element in worshiping the true God that exists. By, by referring to him precisely as he has revealed himself. This is actually what we're doing in our adult Sunday school class at 9 o'clock, is we're talking about who God reveals himself to be in all of his attributes. Because we will rightly worship the true God when we worship who he is as he has revealed himself. It is so easy to fall into making gods for ourselves. Gods with the same names, of course with the same general moral standard, but just a slightly different God than what the Bible describes. And so Jacob does something super important here. He worships God, calls on God by referring to him in this way. And, and it also, by referring to him in this way, Jacob makes it clear that he is holding God to his promise. You're the God who said, I will do this, 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 and this. Remember, remember this? And so he's, he's calling on the God that exists in, in the way that he referred to himself, but also he's holding him to his promise. Secondly, his confession in verse 10 is that he recognizes his unworthiness before God and his abject need for grace. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown. That's a, a primary theme of the Bible, that God has cast his lot with the weak and unworthy. The second-born sons, the barren women, the lowly and despised. And so Jacob confesses that he lacks any credential to make a claim for himself. He's totally dependent on God's mercy and grace. 
He has no defense against Esau. He, not a physical defense. He doesn't have a legal defense. All, if, if Jacob is going to be saved at all, it will be solely God's work alone. And so he appeals to God's steadfast love. That is this Hebrew word, hased, which is sometimes translated kindness. It's God's covenant love. And he appeals to God's faithfulness. And these two in conjunction form the most frequent characterization of God throughout all of Scripture. It's the most common way of referring to God's character, his steadfast love and faithfulness. So Exodus 34, 6, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Has said, steadfast love relates to a superior who, out of kind character, meets the needs of a covenant partner who cannot help themselves. And so it's a kindness from the superior to the inferior, but according to a covenant, covenant love. Faithfulness then signifies that although the superior has no obligation to meet the need, the superior can always be counted on. Jacob's faith fails. This is in evidence both before and after this prayer, but God is faithful regardless. Throughout the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we see their faltering faith. And what is it that brings them to a glorious end? God's faithfulness. Bringing them to faithfulness intermittently, but ultimately God is faithful despite our lack. And so then Jacob's state of blessing can only be explained by the power of God, expressed to him in terms of steadfast love and faithfulness. There is nothing in himself which could have caused this change, and he recognizes that in this moment of faith. He then brings his petition, verse 11. And the petition can be summed up in one word. Deliver. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. The essence of the Christian faith is this earnest prayer. Deliver me. This cry is so intrinsic to the state of God's people that the request, save now, became a customary expression of Israel's worship. Hosanna. So they'd sing, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, which means save now, save now. It's our continued state as the people of God. It's not a one-time deal. It's not that first prayer we said when we entered in the gates. It is our continued response to a God who saves through our every circumstance, and we continue to need saving from our lack of faith. Save me. Deliver me. And finally, Jacob's prayer ends, as many of the Psalms do, with an expression of confidence in a reminder of what God has already said. Verse 12, But you said, I will surely do you good, and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Now who needs to be reminded of God's words here in this prayer? God's forgotten? Jacob needs to be reminded 
reminds himself, God wants people to rehearse his words when they pray. Because it is a motivation of faith in the one praying. You know, church, the prayer of faith can only be a recital of what God has promised. Someone could pretend to have faith to pray for something that God hasn't specifically promised, and it's a lie. It it will only harm your faith to believe that such a prayer is the prayer of faith because we can only know that God will do what he has promised to do. We can ask whatever we want. We can ask and, and request and petition before God anything we like, and he may or may not grant us what we ask, but we can ask with certainty when we are asking according to what he has promised. This is we've gone back into John and looking at this, but this is what it means to ask in Jesus' name. To ask in Jesus' name is not to add a catchphrase to the end of your prayer that now somehow gives it some power. To ask in Jesus' name is to ask according to his will, according to what God has promised. We can also know with certainty that what he has promised contains everything regarding our ultimate good. So when we ask and pray in faith what God has promised, reminding ourselves of God's words, we can know with confidence we will receive what we ask for. Let me tell you, I don't get many of the things I ask for, because sometimes I ask for frivolous things. But when we ask according to God's will, according to his promise, we know we will receive it, and it builds our faith. In this brief prayer, Jacob is deferential. He's confessing his inadequacies, but at the same time, he intends to hold God firmly to his promise of good. And God invites this. God invites us to hold him to to his word. In fact, the only thing we are ever to test God in is test and see whether he will be true to his word. All of this, writers uh, Ross and Oswald write, along with the evidence of God's past dealings with him, should have calmed his fears. But his fear and probably his guilt still controlled him and left him uncertain about the outcome of his prayer. Guilty fears will do this to prayer. For somewhere in the back of the mind is the idea that the answer to the prayer is not deserved and that justice will be meted out instead. And so... Jacob will go right back into trying to do things in his own strength. Because despite praying, he cannot trust the prayer. Because he cannot trust that God will continue to give him what he has not deserved. And there's that niggling doubt in the back of his mind that says, I'm going to get what I deserve. I'm going to get justice instead of the grace of God. And so with us, Jacob will need to understand more of God's steadfast love and faithfulness before his trust is complete. Verse 22. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. It is here at the boundary of the promised land, this border river, that uh, this Jabbok, it, it carves a, a, a fairly deep uh, cleft into the rock. And so as they come down into this river valley, and he sends his family, the last of his things, 
uh, away with them. He, he took them and sends them across the stream. And now at the boundary, Jacob has come to the end of himself. He, he's already enacted all of his strategies. He's already used the last of his possessions and family members as strategically as possible. And, and now he's left quite alone. And this is precisely where God wants him. Jacob must encounter God alone without possessions or protection. He had used everything he had to prepare for his meeting with Esau, but God has another meeting scheduled. Uh, this wrestling match comes out of nowhere. Boom. There's no lead up at all. Jacob is alone at night, and bam, a man is there wrestling with him. Verse 24b, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Just out of nowhere. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, which uh, means the face of God, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. And we don't have time to investigate every area of quite a few questions you may have about this passage. Some I'm just going to give a brief overview of. We're going to go through this rather quickly and maybe come back to some of it next week as we come into the next chapter. This uh, timing of this is incredible. Because if Jacob had known who his assailant was from the outset, he would have never engaged in combat, let alone fought so tenaciously. But in the darkness, he had no idea who it was. Possibly one of Esau's men or Laban's men. Jacob has many enemies, so he could only imagine the worst. He's in a, a land of enemies, surrounded by two specific enemies with grudges against him. And so he just, he's in a fight, and he's going to keep fighting. The assailant is only identified by the narrator as a man. But Jacob will later identify the man as Elohim, verse 31, which is usually translated God, though not always. And then Hosea 12, 4 identifies him as an angel. Now, it is helpful to know that Elohim can also refer to an angel, and it is used in Scripture of all the heavenly beings, such as in Psalm 8, 5. So, Elohim actually means heavenly being, and the angels are sometimes called Elohim, but usually, and all the false gods are also called Elohim. So it's, it's very confusing. Uh, the, the, uh, the translators have to determine what the context is to try to say what this is. So in this particular case, the translators, um, what are they going to do? Uh, it's a man who uh, has supernatural powers, comes in the middle of the night, and Hosea later says that this is an angel. So we know it was an angel, but uh, Jacob also refers to him as God, and then says, I've seen the face of God. 
which, which probably means that he hasn't seen God's face in this pitch black darkness, but that he was, had this personal encounter with God. So the man in question, and I'm going to go through this quickly, and if you have more questions about this, feel free to come to me or send me an email. The man is probably the angel of the Lord, who appears from time to time in Scripture as a physical manifestation of God who is spirit without form, and who no one has ever seen, John 1.18. So Jesus says several times that no one has seen God, that he is spirit, does not have a form like a man. But there are times in the Bible when a man appears to people, and it is God who speaks to them. And so when angels bring God's message to people in the Bible, they are recognized as intermediaries who are not God. Uh, when people are in awe of them and bow down to worship, angels don't allow them to worship. They immediately stop them, such as in Revelations 19.10 and also in 22.9, saying, you must not do that. So an angel does not receive worship. Only he, and the angels in both these sections say, worship only God. But the angel of the Lord is different. When he speaks, it is always God who has spoken. So when the angel of the Lord speaks, then it, God says, did I not say this? And when the angel of the Lord speaks, he doesn't say, God says this. The angel of the Lord says, I say this to you. And it is always as though God is speaking in the first person. So it's an interesting character. Uh, and when he receives honors that are due only to God himself, such as worship, uh, he's just okay with that. So the angel of the Lord is this specific, I, I think of it as a physical manifestation of God who is spirit and not physical. It's about as easy to explain as the Trinity, so I'm going to basically leave it there. It was the angel of the Lord who appeared to Moses in the burning bush, Exodus 3.2, who said, Exodus 3.6, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So do you get the drift here? There's an, it says an angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in the burning bush because God can't appear to anyone without them dying. And then the angel of the Lord says, I am the God of your father. So this physical manifestation is speaking as God, not just for God like an, a normal angel. So like I said, don't, definitely don't have time to explain everything regarding the angel of the Lord this morning, but just so we can continue on here, the man wrestling Jacob is and isn't God. <laughs> Does that help you at all? God has no physical traits until the incarnation of Jesus Christ when God the Son took on the fullness of human nature to save his people. The man here is a particular angel who represents God's own presence and whom God speaks through in an intimate way. And so then the timing of this wrestling match is highly significant here because the deep darkness of night down in the river gorge concealed the adversary's identity. If he had come during the day, we know Jacob wouldn't wrestled with him. He would have fell to his face in terror and so we have to understand that God chose this timing of night, an element of darkness, so that he could engage Jacob in this way. This is all God's planning, right? Jacob did not choose to find someone in the dark to start wrestling. God came to him uh, and came as his assailant. This element of darkness seems like it would be at odds with a God who is himself light, 1 John 1, 5. But the scriptures also describe God as concealing himself in thick darkness. There's actually quite a few verses that talk about God wrapping himself in darkness. Thick darkness. We should understand first that to gaze upon God's glory directly is certain death for human sinners. 
God warns Moses back in Exodus 33 there. As he's looking on the angel of the Lord, God warns him, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. So when, whenever God comes among his people, he dwells in thick darkness, such as when he spoke to Israel from the mountain, Deuteronomy 5.22. And at the consecration of Solomon's temple, where the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord, Solomon says, 1 Kings 8.12, the Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. Now, I don't know if this reminds you of something evil or of Batman, but essentially, God... Wrapping himself in thick darkness is a good thing. In fact, it's something that the psalmist praises God for. Psalm 97, 2, clouds and thick darkness are all around him. In this praise song, in this worship song, they sing about God being wrapped in darkness. Why? Well, God could have kept sending messengers to his people, but he desires to dwell among them as well. But to dwell among his people without killing him, killing them, sorry, uh, he has to conceal himself in darkness. And so we give thanks to God because he comes near. In ancient days, he was concealed by thick darkness and by temple walls. And later, in the incarnation of Jesus, he set his glory aside so that no one would look on him and perceive his majesty and beauty, Isaiah 53, 2. And now, today, by virtue of Jesus' perfect obedience and sacrifice, we are indwelt by God's own invisible spirit as the church, his true temple built from living stones. But back to our text, God, in the form of an angel, came to Jacob to contend with him, choosing to wrestle with him in the pitch black river valley, and he is unable to overcome Jacob, which is about the weirdest part of this incredibly weird story. He wrestles with him all night, and this is important to the name change Jacob will experience because he persists. There's, there's just no quit in this guy. Jacob is unwilling to yield. So that's not to say that the angel cannot overpower him, but that he is unable to make him concede. And then with a mere touch, he conquers Jacob. The supernatural blow crippled him and made him realize that he never could have won. With severe mercy, God dislocates Jacob's hip, the, the wrestler's pivot of strength. Imagine trying to wrestle without a hip. You can't do it. It'd be easier to wrestle without arms. And, and so circumstances have separated Jacob from all the support and possessions that he possessed, but he still enters the ring with his self-sufficiency. It's all he has left. He's a self-made man. He still has his ego. He still is very capable. In fact, he has pro prodigious strength, according to the Bible. So he enters this wrestling match with his self-sufficiency intact, and so God takes that as well. With his strength broken, finally Jacob reverts to his true and last remaining hope. The man who has always prevailed through his shrewdness and considerable strength now prevails through prayer in weakness. Bless me, he cries out. 
I will not let you go unless you bless me. Day is about to break, and it is in Jacob's best interest that he not see God, but he continues to prayerfully cling to God's grace. With his strength broken, Jacob now prevails with prayer. And this is the change of Jacob to Israel. In verse 27, God asks a rhetorical question. What is your name? He doesn't ask, what is your favorite color? It forces this confession from Jacob, forcing him to own up to his devious past by confessing his nature, his way of doing things. To say his name is, in this way is an admission of guilt. It's here that Jacob agrees with Esau that Jacob is the perfect name for him. He's the heel grabber, the deceiver. As with each one of us, in order to be radically changed, he had to acknowledge who he really was without self-deception. And by stripping everything away from him, God gets down to the center of who is Jacob. And he's, you caught me. I'm, I'm Jacob. Just as his prayer reveals that he's totally unworthy of any of the kindness and, fe and fellowship and faithfulness of God, we each come to this place where our deceptions are, are stripped away. Our strength is broken. And we recognize, I am the chief of sinners. I'm the worst. Until this point, Jacob had been trying to seize God's blessings by any means necessary, deceptive or otherwise. And to his credit, he knew the importance of the blessing, but not the means by which it could be received. If there's one thing that you understand this morning, church, I want you to see if you're here in church this morning, I imagine that you understand that we need God's blessing. But many of us go to church regularly without understanding how is that blessing attained. Do I have to give a certain amount? Maybe I have to serve a certain amount. Maybe I have to be a part of certain groups. How, how, do, I, how do I get the blessing you're talking about? How do I experience all that peace, hope, and joy that you keep celebrating every Sunday. Like Jacob, most of us understand that we need God's blessing. That's a good thing. That's, that's really important. How do we get it? He was too self-sufficient and proud to let the blessing be given to him. In that sense, he had been fighting God long before this encounter. God's trying to, would you see this this life of Jacob is God keeps on telling him, I'm going to give you all these things. And then Jacob goes out and tries to get them. He's like, yeah, that's a good idea. I should have all those things. I'm going to deceive my family. I'm going to steal from my brother. I'm going to trick my father and then run off into the wilderness so they don't kill me. I, I, I'm, he's got this strength and shrewdness. Like he, he's a real guy. Like he's, he's super smart and super strong if you, if you follow this story. And God just keeps on saying, no, 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 I'm going to give you this blessing. And Jacob's like, yeah, yeah, we're going to figure this out. I'm going to trick Jabin, or Jabin, J that's my brother-in-law's name. I'm going to trick, <laughs> trick Laban 
you're gonna trick Laban and uh, and cheat him with regards to the flocks. And like, no, 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 no. I'm gonna bless you. And Jacob's like, keeps on going back to like, how are we gonna figure this out? Oh God, you're gonna protect me. Thank you, thank you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pray for your protection. And now, how am I gonna protect myself? Throw my family under the bus, especially the certain wives that weren't his favorite. So Jacob's been wrestling with God this whole time. What's the wrestling match about? God wants to bless him, and Jacob wants to grab the blessing. And both can't happen at the same time. God comes to wrestle him in the night. Why is God there? To bless him. But what's Jacob wrestling him for? He wants to grab the blessing. And it's not until God breaks his strength. And Jacob knows he can't win. That now he prays, bless me. I won't let go until you bless me. I need blessing from you. Just as he prayed, deliver me, O Lord. And as we worship, Hosanna. God save. With a new name, a whole new being is called forth. Whatever the etymology of Jacob's new name, Israel, it's a little bit disputed. Israel essentially means God contends, or God fights, or God persists. But Jacob is given this name to commemorate, verse 28, that he had contended with God and with men and prevailed. And Hosea writes, Hosea 12, 4, he strove with the angel and prevailed. How? He wept and sought his favor. He didn't prevail over the angel by, by beating him. Jacob did not prevail up until the point that his strength was broken. His strength was broken mercifully by God. And then he prevailed as he wept and sought his faith. Jacob's new name represents a reorientation from supplanter and deceiver into prevailer. It focuses in on Jacob's persistence and assertiveness in clinging to God for the blessing that can only come from God. Jacob's still Jacob. This is the wonderful thing about this. Jacob's still Jacob. He is dogged tough. He's strong. He's smart. He's going to hang in there no matter what. God doesn't rip his brain out. God rips his hip out. And now in, his strength is gone. And he is in full reliance on God. He still has this character of persistence, but now that persistence is in clinging to God for the blessing that only comes from God. And it is interesting that this is what will then define God's people. God's Israel will be known as those who God fights, and so God fights for them, but also God fights with them. That they need to be Defeated by God. It reminds us that God will prevail over our enemies, but also that the people of God are persistent and prevail in prayer, trusting God for everything we need. And that God fights us, removing from us everything else we might cling to for hope and security. This is what it means to be Israel. This is what it means to be the people of God. That God wrenches out our self-sufficiency. 
the message of the encounter for Jacob and for all of God's Israel is that the blessing of God is the work of God. Dead stop. He wants to fight for us. But he might have to fight us to get us to the point of surrendering our wills to him. Self-sufficiency, trying to achieve the blessing by our own strength, will not be successful. If we persist in thinking that it will, God may have to cripple our self-sufficiency to make us trust him more. And so God's people, Israel, is not formed by our strength, shrewdness, or choosing, but by an assault from God out of nowhere. It is God's grace, but not the kind we usually imagine. God comes out of nowhere and attacks. Jacob is not consulted about his new identity. He's not asked if he wants to be attacked or if he wants his self-sufficiency to be broken. His new name is given, even imposed upon him. Neither is Abraham asked for that matter, or, or Paul, when God knocks him off his horse and gives him a new name and a new mission, it, it comes with the force of the one who commands, come follow me. And unerringly, they do. But all of these throughout the Bible, and we today, when we stop wrestling with God and start clinging to him, we discover that he has been there for our good to bless us all along. Jacob limps away from the encounter, delivered from himself. This is, is conversion. This is what it was for me. I didn't, I didn't have this sense of an enemy other than my Sin, my pride, my greed, my self sufficiency. He's delivered from himself, which is why God has to fight him. Commentators refer to this event as the magnificent defeat, which I like very much. Or, with a slightly different nuance, the crippling victory. Because there was a victory. Jacob's own strength is broken. But now he walks with newfound spiritual strength. It is as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 12.10, when I am weak, then I am strong. There comes a time when God must cripple the natural strength of his people so that they might receive his blessings by faith. And he will faithfully bring us to the point where our self-sufficiency is proved insufficient. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. I'm so thankful for the way that it cuts to the heart. It confronts me. It convicts me. It reassures me. As the famous him says, grace has taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. 
We thank you, God, that you bring us to a place of fear. We see your holiness here, and then your love relieves it. Your steadfast love, your hesed, and your faithfulness to us. Defeat us, we pray. Help us to learn what it is you are teaching us about our need for you. Cause us to glorify you by our total reliance on you. And even as we come to your table symbolically this morning, God, may we be, may be pressed on our hearts and minds our total need and your gracious sufficiency for us. Yes, this is for the glory of Jesus. Amen.